Thanks for joining us on the Southside Church Podcast. We seek to build real followers of Jesus, so we hope that you find this message both encouraging and insightful. Let's jump in. Good morning, Southside. It's great to have you with us for worship this morning. Uh, We've started a series called Extraordinary. Uh, Pastor Jeff has led us through a couple of weeks of that already, and I have the honor and privilege today to talk about a very significant figure in the Old Testament uh, by the name of Gideon. But before we look forward to the life of Gideon, I think it's very helpful and beneficial for us to look back and see kind of what's happened. And by the time we get to Gideon's life, understand kind of the context of the situation that Gideon finds himself in. So if you find the book of Judges, which is Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, um, you heard the name Joshua. So just one book before we're introduced to the Judges, a a different phase in the the life of the nation of Israel. Uh, We have a great ruler in the person of Joshua. Before Joshua, Joshua, we have the the greatest leader in the nation of Israel's history, and a man um, named Moses. You've probably heard at least of this guy named Moses. He had countless experiences with God. He was the one that went up on top of the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God Himself, who God wrote with His finger the Ten Commandments for the nation of Israel to live by. Moses discipled Joshua, brought Joshua alongside him to to do ministry, to, to see firsthand what it looked like to lead the nation of God's people. And when we get to Joshua, we see a pretty smooth transition of of leadership from Moses to Joshua. And when we look at the book of Joshua, we see kind of the accounts of a detailed account of Joshua's life and his leadership, the conquest of being in the land that that God had promised the people, divvying up the land between the tribes. And we see a, a thriving time in the nation of Israel, their history. It was a great time to be an Israelite. And when we get to the end of the book of Joshua, at the time where Joshua is about to die, we see him giving his farewell speech in Joshua 23 and 24. And that's kind of where I want us to start today um, as we kind of look back in order to look forward. Uh, So if you want to follow along with me, I'm actually going to be in Joshua Chapter 23, I'm going to read verses 6 through 8, then I'm going to read a couple of verses after that, then read a verse from chapter 24 before we finally get to where we want to land in Judges chapter 6. So follow along with me. Joshua 23, verses 6 through 8 to begin with. This is verse 6. It says, Be very strong and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you do not turn from it to the right or to the left. And if you remember, if you were to turn back to Joshua chapter 1, that was the command that God gave to Joshua before Joshua took over his kind of leadership of the nation of Israel. He says, I want you to hold fast to the law of God, all of it. Meditate on it day and night so that you will not depart from it. He says, in the day that you do depart from it, you will see difficulties, you will see struggles, and you will see trials. So at the end of Joshua's life, he's kind of ending his, his, his leadership just like it began and reminding them to stay true to the, to the word of God. It says, so that you may not turn from it to the right or to the left. And he says, and so that you do not associate with nations remaining among you. Do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not serve them or bow to them, uh, bow and worship to them. 
And then verse 8 tells us, instead, be loyal to the Lord your God as you've been to this day. So we see kind of Joshua's leadership ending the same way that it started by reminding the people to stay true to God's word. He even challenges them so much more in verse 11 of that same chapter. So diligently watch yourself. Love the Lord your God. If you ever turn away and become loyal to the rest of these nations remaining among you, and if you intermarry or associate with them and and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out before you. They will become a snare and a trap for you, a sharp stick for your sides and thorns in your eyes until you disappear from this good land the Lord your God has given you. So we see an if and then statement. We see a promise that God says, I will uphold this promise. I will be faithful to it as long as you remain faithful. And then we see kind of this chapter kind of end with this statement. If you break the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow and worship to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly disappear from this good land he has given you. Kind of a repeating. And if anything, if, if God says something, we need to pay attention. But if he repeats himself, we definitely need to take note of it. So this is Joshua reminding the people of the importance of being faithful and obedient to the God that's been so faithful to them. And then we see in the, in the final chapter of the book of Joshua, probably the most quoted verse of all scripture. I've seen this This verse even plastered in people's houses. It's a great verse. It's a great motto to live by, especially as the head of our households. Joshua is quoted in chapter 24 of saying, choose you this day whom you will serve. That's chapter six, sorry. But choose you this day whom you will serve. And he says that the powerful words of, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Words that you are no doubt familiar with. And if you go down on into that chapter, we see that there are, there are false gods even present at that time in the nation of Israel's life. So if you go down, that's, that's chapter 24, verses 6 and 7, somewhere around there. And if you go on down into that chapter, he challenges them and says, who are you going to worship? And of course, the nation of Israel, being the nation of Israel that they are, they say, we're going to worship God. And then we see Joshua say, no, you won't. You're going you're gonna to be disloyal. You're going you're gonna to intermarry. You're going to do all these things that I've told you not to. And they said, no, 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 no. We're going to worship the Lord our God. And then we see that there are already false gods among them because Joshua says, if that's true, you need to go now and get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. So we see that even while they were living under good leadership, even while they were worshiping the one true God, they had incorporated false gods into their worship. And, and even though the nation of Israel had idols among them, they were never easy to lead. That's why we see countless times Moses interceding for them. God decided he wanted to destroy the nation of Israel, wipe them out, start over again. Moses interceded for him and said, God, that, that's, you love this people. This is not what you want to do. And we see Moses loving the people. We see Joshua loving the people so much that they, he wants his legacy to continue on after he's gone. It's not about Joshua. It's not about Moses. It's about the one true God. And when we come to the book of 
judges, even though we're kind of inserting ourselves a couple of chapters in, we see there were judges before we get to Gideon. And in the book of Judges, we see a cycle of continuous sin in the lives of the Israelites. And so we're going to pick up in Judges chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read the the first eight verses. So if you want to follow along with me. It says, The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a common statement that you will find in the book of Judges. And this begins the cycle that we're going to talk about. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years. And they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and Malachites and the the Quetamites came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. And they left nothing for the Israelites to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to waste it. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And when the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of a place of slavery. And before we move on, I want us to see kind of this cycle of sin in the book of Judges. And it starts with apostasy. It's just a fancy word that means to turn away from, to fall away to rebel against. And we see this over and over and over again. We see it starting in the book of Joshua, where there were already false gods in there, uh, whether it was a a failure on Joshua's part to raise up another leader, or it was just the overwhelming sin in the nation of Israel that caused this cycle to begin. We see it starting very early on in the book of Judges. And we see this apostasy, and the people did, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that always led to servitude. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. I know we're picking up in chapter six, but go back and read the first five chapters and you'll see this pattern. You'll see this cycle. And it's always the same. It starts with the falling away of the people. They forget the promises of God. They forget the commandments of God. They forget the covenant that they made with God. And they begin to do things that are evil in God's sight. And so, God turns them over to the desires of their heart. And the desires of our heart always end in separation from us and God, in servitude to another God or another people group. In this this instance, it is Midian. And he turned them over for seven years, but there's always supplication. We'll talk about this more in just a little bit, but we see the nation of Israel time and time again, when things get hard, they forget about God, then things get hard. And then because of their circumstances, they begin to cry out to God. And because God is a gracious and loving and forgiving God, God always pours out his grace and mercy on people that don't deserve it. People like me, people like the nation of Israel. This is when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites. They cried out to God for a savior. And usually the cycle ends with 
salvation. But this time, and I want us, this is where I didn't even intend, intend for us to, to camp out here because my full intention when I, when I, when I was, when Pastor Jeff asked me to preach uh, the life of Gideon, focusing on um, Gideon leading the 300 and how God did something extraordinary through the ordinary person of Gideon, I could not help but get lost in this passage. And we'll get to the 300, but I want us to see kind of what sets up the 300. Usually the cycle ends. We see the apostasy. We see the the nation of Israel forgetting about who God is. They've stopped worshiping him. They fall into servitude. They cry out to God in supplication, and God usually sends a savior. Salvation comes to the nation of Israel. And the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. This is different. Usually it goes straight from sending or for them crying out for help, crying out in supplication to God for, for help. God usually just straight sends a judge, sends someone to deliver them. But, but God does something different this time. He sends them a prophet to call them out, call them out on their sin. And it was a, it was a call to repentance. And this is, the, this is what's different from the previous cycles. We see God, God gave them what they needed, not necessarily what they wanted. And this is what's different. And I, I believe that, that God always, in moments where we, where we don't necessarily know what we need, we cry out out of desperation, we cry out for what we want, we cry out for what we desire, but what we desire is not always what God desires. And so God gives us what we need. And that sometimes upsets, upsets us because it's not what we expected. It's rarely ever what we expected. But I want us to focus on kind of this idea that, that there's a difference between regret and repentance. And we're going to see that in verses 8 through 10. Uh, so let's back up to verse 8. This is the Lord sent a prophet to them, and he said to them, this is what the Lord of, of God, the God of Israel says, I brought you out of Egypt out of a place of slavery. So he's reminding them of what he's done for them. And he says, I delivered you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in, but you do not obey me. When we don't obey God, we begin to live lives that God never meant for us to live. And there are consequences to that. And because we find ourselves disobeying God, we find ourselves in consequences. And that's what I want us to to kind of harp on right here for just a second. There's a difference between regret and repentance. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow or regret is, is sorrow over kind of the consequences of sin. If there were no consequences, there would be no sorrow. Our focus is horizontal. It's, it's worldly. It's, it's how it affects kind of my relationships, my status, or my, 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 Facebook in, my Facebook friends, or my Facebook environment. It has no concern for how it vertically affects my relationship with God. And that, that because this is a cycle that we see in the nation of Israel, They've not ever truly repented. They've been sorrowful for their consequences. They don't want to be turned over to the nation of of Midian for seven years. And they get sick of their consequences. So therefore they call out to God, expecting God to, to be gracious because that's who he is. 
Worldly sorrow doesn't produce change. Worldly sorrow even makes us stay in regret because the focus is on us, how I am being hurt, how my life is ruined or how my heart is breaking. That is exactly what the nation of Israel was feeling. I'm tired of being oppressed because the the Midian didn't come in for political power. They came in for economic gain. They came in to destroy the nation of Israel's crops and their livelihood. And they were tired of it. They were tired of, of feeling hurt and broken. They were tired of their consequences the consequences of their sin. But godly sorrow or true repentance is sorrow over the sin and how it grieves God and violates our relationship with Him. Godly sorrow of of real repentance removes all regret. We don't have to live in the regret of kind of the, the lingering feeling of regret because we know godly sorrow produces in us a fear of the Lord, knowing that because I have this relationship with him, it's easy for us to move on, being sorrowful over our sin first, but knowing that we serve a forgiving and gracious God who abounds in grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it, me. We can move on from our sin. Repentance is is moving. It is not living and wallowing in our regret and self-pity. And after being restored to God, we don't, we don't hate ourselves because our focus is not on us. It's on our God. And the people of Israel are regretful for what they've lost. They lost their crops. They lost, they lost their factories. They lost their, their economic producing powerhouses. But they hadn't really thought about their relationship or status before God. And so God's aim in sending them a prophet is to move them beyond their regret to repentance. And before we move on to the grace that God gives them, even though they don't deserve it, but praise God, he gives us grace, gives grace to those who don't deserve it. I want us to see what we can learn with, from, from, from this response and, and what, what our response should be when we find ourselves in this common situation. We, we all struggle with sin in our lives. Just like the nation of Israel, I don't think they're much different than we are. We all struggle with sin in our lives, making for ourselves idols and offering those idols worship that is only due the one true God. But what we need to do is evaluate our lives and ask whether we are sorrowful, regretful for the consequences or are we sorrowful for the sin itself? Because there is a huge difference. I'm, I'm upset because of the, the situation that I'm in, the circumstances, or am I, or am I upset about the root of these circumstances, the cause? Stop treating the symptom and treat the, the root of the problem. And this is what God is doing by sending them a prophet. Are we upset because the, we lost a, a pleasure or because we lost a, our status? Maybe that was the consequence of our sin. Are we more upset about that or are we more upset by how this dishonored and displeased God? And I think we need to see the beauty of God's word here because when we, when we think we need a miraculous sign, because when we think we need a miraculous salvation, 
when we think we need this, this big event to happen in order for us to move beyond our circumstance, notice what God gives the nation of Israel. He sends them, he sends them someone with a sermon, a teaching from the word of God. And the word of God is where we find not only who God is, but because of God, because God is who he is, that defines who we are. And the people of Israel were crying out to God for some type of miraculous event to take place to free them from their circumstance. But instead, God sent them his word. And when we spend too much time away from his word, we forget. Going back to what Joshua said. Joshua reminded the nation of Israel, the promises of God, the commands of God. And he said, you need to stay true to the commands of God because in the day when you, when you are disloyal to them, there will be circumstances. There will be consequences. And because of the subtlety of the sin of Israel, because they weren't, they weren't completely removing the worship of God, they were adding things to the worship of God. They were leaving up the, the altars of God, but they were also building other altars beside those. And that's, that's what we're guilty of, right? I mean, we're, we're all here this morning worshiping Worshiping the offering our worship and sacrifice to the one true God, but how many altars do we bow before every other day of the week? And I don't want to step on toes, but how many times do we and even and even cause our kids to fall down at the at the at the altar of, of sports or the altar of extracurricular activities? How often do we we force all these good things that God has given us. How often do we build shrines and altars to good things in our lives and neglect the worship of God? And even, even worse, stop worshiping God because our focus is so much on these things. I've been in preparation for the parenting uh, intensive that we're doing right now. I've been listening to some parenting books. I've been reading some parenting books, godly men and women. And one of the phrases that have stuck with me over the last couple of weeks is, um, is shame on me as a, as a dad, as a leader of my household, if I teach my son to keep his eye on the ball, but fail to teach him how to keep his eyes on Christ. And we're just like the nation of Israel. We're here this morning offering worship to a great God. But what other altars are we bowing down to Monday through Saturday? The idols that take us away from our husbands and wives, the ones that pull our attention and affection away from our families and pull our eyes off Jesus. Through the prophet, God says, I haven't abandoned you. You have abandoned me. And all of this is before we get to Gideon. But we see that there's no, there's no really description of the repentance in the nation of Israel's life, but we see that God still gives grace. God is a gracious and loving God. And even though there's no sign of repentance by the people, God still allows his grace to pour out on the nation of Israel because of his goodness his faithfulness, 
and gracious love because it's not dependent on us. It's just who he is. But God does raise up a savior. He calls Gideon. And in Gideon 11, we see, um, or, or Gideon chapter, or it's not, Gideon doesn't have his book, Joshua. It's Gideon's chapter dedicated to the life of Gideon. Joshua chapter 6, we see the call of God on the life of Gideon. So chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, and it says, An angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in uh, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the, uh, the Abyssalite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine wine vat in order to hide it from the Midianites. And, and, and keep in mind, this is significant to the story, gives us a little bit of context. Again, the Midianites were not there for political gain. They weren't trying to take over the nation of Israel to like, accumulate them similar to what Rome would do. The nation of Israel was being exploited for their, econ- for their economic reasons. They were their, their crops. They were kind of making Israel do the work for their crops, and they were taking their crops. And so we find Gideon hiding, kind of working so that he could feed his family, maybe could provide for some, some people in the nation of Israel. But notice when the angel of the Lord comes, he says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Other translations say you mighty man of valor, which is a pretty interesting description given that, that, that Gideon is hiding at this moment, which, which shows me that God doesn't measure us based on uh, our circumstances, but rather he, he calls us to what he sees in us. Not only does he call us to what he sees in us, he, he calls us to what he created us to be and what he created us to do. Gideon asks, you know, where have you been, God? And we see the answer to that up in uh, verse 8 through 10, where the prophet says, it wasn't God who abandoned you. God's in the same place you left him. You abandoned God. And so Gideon's question is, where have you been, God? If this is really you, where have you been? Why have you allowed all these things to happen? But God's next words to him says, I want you to save Israel. And Gideon says, well, how do I do that? God says, I will be with you. But before we see the extraordinary happen through the life of Gideon, true repentance must happen. And we see True repentance happened in chapter 6, verses 25 through 28. So follow along with me there. And it says, On that very night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull and the second bull, seven years old, then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Gideon's family was caught up in this same type of worship of false gods, which leads us to believe that Gideon was doing the same exact thing. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on the top of this rock. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. What you destroy, I want you to take and, and burn, a, burn a cow, a big, a big animal on top of it as a sacrifice to me. So Gideon took 10 of his male servants and he did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. But he did it. 
And when the men of the city got up in the morning, they found Baal's altar torn down, the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull offered up on the altar that he had built. And we see the true repentance begins when we tear down the altars we've built to the other gods in our life. God says, if you're really in, to Gideon, he says, if you're really in, I want you to tear down the altars that you've built to other gods. And while the text doesn't say that, that Gideon was, while, while it does say that he was still afraid, he went by night, he took others with him, and he destroyed the altar. But it's not enough for us to pay lip service to God. It's not enough for us to say, yeah, God, you spoke to me, yeah, I'm for you. Who in the world do we think we are fooling, trying to look like an angel on Sunday and, and basically living like hell the rest of the week? Repentance is not lip service. It's action. And because, there is, and because there was true repentance in the life of Gideon, because they had been called by the prophet, called out on their sin and called to a different way of living, and even though there was very present fear and even doubt, if you want to read the famous account of, the, um, of, of, of Gideon putting out the fleece, the famous fleeces, God used him in a very visible and a very powerful way. God wasn't looking for someone with all the tools and talents in order to accomplish his will. He was looking for someone with the availability and willingness to be used. He didn't look for someone perfect and then settle for Gideon. He chose Gideon. Not because of what Gideon could do, but because of what God could do through him. And finally, we get to that extraordinary thing that God puts into ordinary people. And we see the account of the 300. And even though this is not really the focus, we see that as the result of removing sin from your life, <clears throat> acting upon the repentance. Repentance is an, an action. It's not just lip service. He tore down the idols. Then God used him to do an extraordinary thing. We see Gideon and the 300. God doesn't, <coughs> because, God, because Gideon was obedient, the spirit of God tells us in, 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 at the end of chapter six that, that God drew people to Gideon. 32,000 men from the tribes came to, came to Gideon and they were assembling an army of God to go against the nation of Midian. But instead of you know, 32,000 people, that's a lot, of, uh, a lot of soldiers. But God, in an attempt to guard their heart, because he knows the heart of men, in an attempt to guard the nation of Israel's heart from being able to boast in themselves, he, he says in, in chapter he says in chapter 7, he says, the people are too many. 32,000 troops. He says, there are too many. But notice what he says. He says, there are too many for me to give into Midian, the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And so of the 32,000, God instructs Gideon to say, all right, let everybody who's afraid announce to the soldiers, anybody who's afraid, they can go home. 22,000 men say, that's me, I'll go home. 
leaving Gideon with a, an army of 10,000 soldiers. God says, still too many. Put them to a little test, Gideon. I want you to go down to that lake over there, and I want you to tell the boys to drink. And of everybody that kind of sticks their head down in the water and laps the water like a dog, I want you to tell them to you know, get to stepping. But keep everyone who, this is wartime, right? This is a, a, an applicable thing that we would do today. A person that's drinking water from the lake, he's got his head on a swivel. Those are the people that you actually want for war. Anyway, 300 men were all that was left. And God said, now let's go. Dwindled the number from 32,000 to 300. And Gideon with his 300 men gives them the battle plan. I just, this blows my mind. This is, really, this is truly the extra in the ordinary because this is, this is all God. There is no other reason, there is no other way that anybody could get glory except for God in this moment. Because instead of heading out to battle, you know, grabbing your spears, grabbing your swords, grabbing your armor, notice what the battle plan was. Gideon said, take your trumpet, take an empty jar, and take a torch and follow me. Do what I do, and then we're going to beat them. The victory is clearly the Lord's. There was nothing extra about Gideon. There was nothing extra about these 300 men. There is nothing extra about anyone in this book without God. Because God, God doesn't ask us to be extraordinary because we can't be that on our own. Extraordinary things happen when ordinary people allow an extraordinary God to work in and through them to accomplish extraordinary things through our everyday ordinary tasks. I think we're all looking, just like the people of Israel, we're looking for God to do this miraculous event. And God is looking for you to be available for him to work through your everyday life. Through the way that you, you love your spouse, through the way that you parent your kids, through the way that you treat your employees or co-workers. God's asking you to give him glory in the little things. He will add the extra. And today I wanna, I wanna challenge us just as Gideon did before he went to do something extraordinary with God. He tore down the altars to the false gods in his life. What are the false gods in our life? How many altars have we built and asked God to come along with us? in order for God to be able to use us to do the extraordinary. We've got to tear down the altars we've built to other gods and submit to the authority of the one true God, no matter where he takes us and no matter what it looks like along the way. Because I guarantee you, Gideon wouldn't have said that God could have done that through him. I guarantee you, Gideon would say, I never imagined us defeating a nation and never have to draw a sword. God needs your availability, not your ability.
would you bow your head and close your eyes? There's, there's, a, there's a prayer that's going to come up on the screen, and um, there, there's no necessarily power in these words, but this is a start to us, to us identifying and tearing down the altars that we've built to false gods so that we can truly worship the one true God. And the words of these prayer are helping our hearts posture to, to the one true God. So if you want to pray these words with me, you can read them on the screen. It says, Father God, you love me so much that you, you sent your son to be, to be my savior. Jesus, forgive me from my sin and by your grace, restore me to you. Jesus, be the Savior and Lord of my life. Help me to follow you. I say yes to you today, Jesus. Amen. If you made that decision today to say yes, I do want to choose Jesus. I do want to acknowledge him as my personal Lord and Savior. Congratulations. We could not be more excited for you. And we want to help you in that process and answer any questions that you might have and provide you resources. To do that, simply text Jesus, that's J-E-S-U-S, to 706-449-0870. And one of our pastors on staff will be in touch with you because we want to help you as you walk out your faith. If you thought, you know what, I would like to contribute to all that God is doing in and through Southside. I would like to partner with them. You can do that in three simple ways. First, you can text GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 706-449-0870. Secondly, you can do it on the Southside app in the GIVE tab. Lastly, Southside.online. You can do it through the GIVE section on our website. Thank you so much for being here with us today, and we hope you have a great rest of your week.